Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Hey, everyone. Season four of the Performance Nutrition Podcast, bringing you evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to take your nutrition game to the next level. Awesome. I hope you are enjoying a little newfound freedom as the COVID rules begin to relax a little bit. Of course, still covering your faces with masks and washing your hands, but also excited to see some sporting events back. And this weekend, we see horse racing back in action, the first race of the Triple Crown in America, which this year is the Belmont Stakes. And so I thought the perfect time to be chatting with performance nutritionist, Dr. Dan Martin, all about professional horse racing and performance nutrition. Dan has worked as a performance nutritionist in professional horse racing for the Haas Formula One team, as well as Huddersfield's Professional Football Club in England. He's currently a postdoctoral researcher at Liverpool John Moores University, investigating the development, implementation, and evaluation of an industry-specific education platform to assist jockeys in their nutritional knowledge and weight management. So on the show, Dan is going to share some of his research on weight cutting in jockeys. He'll talk about relative energy deficiency in sport and how it relates to bone density concerns in professional jockeys. Dan's also done some fascinating work on nutritional behavior change in jockeys. He'll discuss that work as well as we'll chat about how social media and the internet also has a big influence on athlete behavior, strategies to cope with that, the parallels between working with professional jockeys and professional race car drivers, and uh, just a ton more. Terrific interview here with Dan. He's a wealth of knowledge. You can find the links and the podcast summary in the show notes at performancenutritionpodcast.com. If you're interested in more on this topic, you can check out some episodes from a few seasons back here, season three, episode 14, with Dr. Scott Robinson on performance nutrition and professional boxing, as well as season two, episode 46, with Dr. Doug Kalman, PhD, on making weight in combat sports. Fantastic. This episode is sponsored by my book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. Proud to announce 12 months in a row as a number one on Audible as a bestseller. So big shout out to all the listeners for the support. And a quick announcement before we get started. We will be releasing the Peak online course this fall for strength coaches, nutritionists, practitioners out there who want to upgrade their performance nutrition skills and earn some continuing education credits along the way. Please check that out. You can sign up for the pre-sale list at drbubs.com forward slash peak or you can head over to athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. You'll be the first to hear when it drops and get a nice discount as well. Terrific. Let's do this. Season 4, Episode 11 with Dr. Dan Martin. Enjoy. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time today. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Listen, maybe we can uh, kick off today's conversation by you telling folks a little bit more about your background and how you got into this space of research. Uh, certainly. Um, I guess I got into it the the same route as most with a, with a standard undergrad in, in sport and exercise science back in 2009. Um, and at that time, I thought I wanted to work in, in, in education as a, as a college lecturer. So in, in 2010, I went and did a postgrad sort of in, in education to go down that route. Um, did that for a couple of years, um, realized, do I want to do this until I'm 65? And I thought may, maybe not, uh, in professional sport, <laughs> I doing some voluntary work in there. Um, so I nipped back, um, to do the, the masters in sport and exercise nutrition, uh, sort of part-time along, alongside working full-time in education from 2013 to 15. Um, and it was in 2015, I got the big opportunity then to go to John Moore's university in Liverpool, um, so I uh, yeah, sort of quit the full-time um, employment and became a full-time student again, um, doing the PhD there. Really lucky um, with the supervisory team, uh, Dr. Rebecca Murphy and uh, Professors Graham Close and James Morton, which was which was great. And 
in 2019 um, at the back end off the back of the PhD started a postdoc so I'm, I'm still there um, doing that stuff and and from the work side of things um, started off as voluntary work um, whilst I was still teaching um, working in a professional rugby academy um, with like the under 15s and under 16s kids and that led to, led to a bit of paid work and it was really in 2014 that my first breakthrough came through I guess working with professional jockeys um, and then from 2015 at John Moore's with the with the links and the connections there um, had a couple of years in professional rugby um, with the Witness Vikings in in the British Super League um, and then yet today I've still got the jockey work going on alongside some work in football and, and Formula One. Fantastic well yeah I mean the work you're doing at the moment in the weight making space as you mentioned in relation to, to jockeys and professional horse racing you know I was surprised to read that professional horse racing is actually the second most attended sport in the UK after football which is pretty impressive um, and of course you know like a lot of weight making sports and sports in general, obviously, we can take a lot from from what you're finding out in the jockeys and, and transfer that to other sports. But when we look at weight-making sports in general, there are a lot of old-school weight-making strategies that are still used today. Can you talk about some of the ones that professional jockeys might still be using? Yeah, sure. Um, no, where do we start? This, 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 <laughs> um, I guess I'd describe it. It's, uh, it's a little bit of a continuum. So uh, at one end, um, they're trying to do it through... Um, calorie restriction and it's probably too much of of a good thing almost um really it goes from calorie restriction to to pure starvation i guess and sometimes uh, these guys won't eat let, let anything fluid or um fluid or solid past the lips for you know 24 48 hours if they're having to really make a make a tough weight mm-hmm. and they usually compound that with some form of sweating some some passive you know, i.e running in a sweatsuit um, and then quite a lot, uh, sort of just like passive sweating, uh, sorry, active sweating, and then and, uh, the passive sweating. Um, and that can really start on a timeline from when they wake up in the morning. Uh, they can jump in in like a red-hot bath and sit in there for an hour quite often. I've learned they, they rub the body in in like in table salt, and then they'll jump back in, I think try to get some sort of osmosis going and and then sweat as much as they can out. Um, and then through the morning, whilst they're, they're riding the horses, sort of like exercising them, um, they'll get sort of rugged up themselves, multiple layers, even even in the height of summer. Um, and then during the early afternoon, when they're driving to the races, because um, jockeys tend to, there's no team bus, they'll drive themselves there. Uh, again, they'll, they'll wear the sweatsuit and they'll have the heated seat on and the, and the heaters on full whack in the car, try to sweat wow. as much can and and then when they get there if, if they still need to lose some weight they'll they'll gladly jump in the sauna and they'll spend an hour or two in and out of the sauna getting reweighed um so it can be it can be pretty relentless um i mean the, at the other end of the continuum where it's a little bit more more risky and a bit more dangerous that although the band there are probably still some um misguided use of, of diuretics and laxatives mm-hmm. uh, and then the the real nastiest thing, I guess, is that self-induced vomiting, um, which not all jockeys do. It's it's a it's a minority thing, but it's uh, it's still something that that goes on. And yeah, it's not it's not a great practice, but unfortunately, it's still a uh, a means that some jockeys still use. Yeah, it is incredible to see the lengths at which, even today in in sport and professional racing, that jockeys will go to, and you see it, of course, across other sports as well. And I think the thing that really jumped out at me was the fact that, you know, unlike, let's say, mixed martial arts or boxing, you know, these jockeys are weighing in almost every day, right? Um, which obviously has some pretty significant potential health implications. So could you walk listeners through some of the potential pitfalls of, of those types of strategies for making weight? And of course, the fact that they have to make that weight so frequently. Yeah, I mean, in in the UK, uh, racing takes place on 362 days of the year. Um, so for flat jockeys, that really is 362 days of the year because through the through the summer months when we race on the turf, that's on the grass. But then in the winter months, um, since the early 2000s, we've all then, we've, we've then got um, dirt racing as well, which flat jockeys will then transition from the summer months right the way through the winter months. So it's for those guys, it, it, it is tough because they're doing Incredible. it all, all year round. Um, and unlike in other sports, that not a lot of them are, are mega wealthy, so they, so they struggle to find um yeah, well, they struggle to take time off just financially. Um, so they will sort of put themselves through it. And I guess in terms of the health side of things, 
I guess you can break it down in, into two parts. There's the, there's the acute effects of, of making weight on the day and doing that day in, day out, and then the potential you know, long-term chronic implications of, of doing this over, over the duration of a career. Um, I guess the, the acute ones, um, the more around, the, I guess, the increased risk of injury, the, the, the things that come with low muscle glycogen, um, massive dehydration. So I guess lapses in concentration, um, decreased um, sense of awareness, balance coordination. I've spoken to many jockeys that have, have fallen off uh, during a race and uh, they don't remember falling off. They basically fainted sort of on the horse. Um, so I guess the, the biggest risk on the day is probably the risk of, of, of falling off. Um, it's a pretty good risk as well, isn't it? Yeah, and and the, the the biggest thing that you probably see with jockeys on a day-to-day basis who are going through the ringer chasing chasing the weight is, is the mood. Um, they can be very erratic on, on race day and, uh, and quite short-tempered, partly because they, they may not have eaten all day or all week. Um, and the dehydrate, the thirsty. Um, so yeah, the, the, the mood is a big one, and maybe the long-term effects of of that. There's no evidence to suggest what it might be, but I'm, I'm not sure if there's something something there. Um, in terms of long-term effects on health generally, um, I guess you can never, you, you can't be certain what the future holds because there's there's no actual evidence on this um, group of jockeys and what's the effect of of the rate of weight cycling day in day out over you know over, over 5 10 15 years um one study from a group in Ireland um they had a look at some um some retired jockeys um i think they were around 60 years old and they've been retired like 20 odd years um and there was no real other than two thirds of them were sort of overweight and there was no real um nothing really to write home about there was no um prevalence of disease or anything like that but it's really hard to to, to correlate between um, being a jockey and, and anything that you could see there anyway and what we really need is some longitudinal data so try and get these guys early and if we can track them through the um, through the entirety of the careers if we can and even into retirement that'd be that'd be great um, I guess if you want to have a guess at something I mean we know that these guys are potentially um low energy athletes low energy availability and mm-hmm. then is the is the their prevalence of reds now and maybe then the the lasting consequence of that um in terms of long-term effect of suppressed immune function does that open them up to diseases maybe um you know, decreased bone health um and then does does some of this um, disordered eating which we see does is there the risk of that tipping over actually into eating disorders and i mean anecdotally i can say i've seen it a couple of times but probably not in the masses yeah it's interesting isn't it because even in sport just like in life environment is such a powerful influencer and in your earlier work you note that you know approximately 63 percent of jockeys actually prefer to seek weight making and nutrition advice from their peers and retired elders rather than qualified nutritionists dietitians um you know, can you comment on that? And, and, you know, as you do your research now and today, are we still in that space or are things improving? Um, a little bit of both, I guess. Um, it's a very, very insular sport. And even, even now young jockeys will, um, probably take the advice of, of elder jockeys and senior jockeys and just people who've been around the industry a lot longer over, over that of, of professionals. I mean, I'm looking now in the sense that I've been around the sport for for seven years, so I'm within the, within horse racing at least. I'm I'm well known, um, so jockeys tend to come straight to me and and the 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 guys at John Moore's University, um, and within the Professional Jockeys Association nutrition team. We've been around a while, so we're trusted. Um, but when I first came into like I I, I played rugby up until being 23, so when I first started working with with jockeys i was like <laughs> i was like who is this guy yeah he's way I, too big and some of these guys are like 50 kilos 52 kilos so i'm literally twice the weight of some of them and I'm, and I'm telling them how to how to be light um so i can appreciate the skepticism at the time but thankfully i've been around a while 
Um, so they are, well, I think they're taking what I'm saying on board a little bit more than they used to anyway. Um, but yeah, it is. It's still an insular sport. And um, for sure, um, the word within the dressing room um, is still king, I, I say, I'd guess, um, over that of experts, generally speaking. Yeah, and you also talk about how jockeys don't have this athlete identity. You, know, you mentioned you know, coming from rugby and obviously sports like rugby, American football, basketball, you know, soccer, obviously what the rest of the world calls football. These are sports that athleticism is really um, top of the table. And of course, you know, you write about how, you know, these jockeys don't have an athlete identity. They have a jockey identity. Can you unpack that a little bit for listeners? Certainly, yeah. Um, I guess it's easier to a little bit to go back to how I sort of stumbled upon that. Um, when I first started doing the doing the research, one of the key, the burning question was like, why, despite all the the research that had been done over the last five years by Graham and James and the team at the university, all the evidence of um, how to make weight safely and the the detrimental effects on health and performance of of acute and you know continuous sort of rapid weight loss, were jockeys still doing it despite all the evidence sort of suggesting that you shouldn't. Um, so I interviewed a bunch of people within the industry, so jockeys themselves, their agents, their trainers, some jockey coaches, um, basically to asking questions around like why is that still the case? And one of the key things that came through was right across the industry, there's a lack of perception that these guys are professional athletes. And when you talk to the jockeys themselves, they're sort of split down the middle, really, as to whether they self-identify as a professional athlete or not. And when you try to drill down a little bit further and say, well, why is that? When you, I, I try to compare them to um, boxers or mixed martial artists mm -hmm. or lightweight rowers. And one of the things I alluded to early, earlier is um, maybe the, the monetary reward that you get for it. Um, so when they look at um, people like Floyd Mayweather or um, Conor McGregor, who are multi-multi-millionaires, uh, jockeys only get around a hundred pounds per race. So the average salary of, of jockeys is actually only around 30,000 pounds per year, which is comparable wow. to that of like a police officer or a, or a nurse, for example. Um, there are some at the elite end who are multimillionaires, but most of their money comes through um, endorsements and advertisements and the bigger prize money in the, in the, in the top, top races, mm -hmm. 600, around 600 professional jockeys in the UK, um, and the vast majority of them aren't sponsored and aren't uh, endorsed by by um, big companies. So they're picking up just general salaries, and I think that's that's one key as to why they don't identify as athletes. Um, there's this sense, to an extent, with some of your older school um, practitioners generally within the industry, that they're treated a little bit like commodities um, rather than... Um, they're not wrapped up in cotton wool like we might see some of the soccer players. Mm -hmm. um, so, so they're not treated like athletes from people within the industry, which in some ways is good. It keeps them humble. Um, but at the same time, I think it has a bit of a negative adverse effect in that they don't necessarily look after themselves um, because they're not, um, yeah, I, they're not seen as athletes by other people. And I think that has a, um, an effect on how they see themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, uh, that mindset piece is, is so so massive in terms of behaviors. And, of course, we're going to talk about behaviors mm -hmm. a little further down the road here. Now, if we circle back to the discussion around relative energy deficiency and, of course, things like bone density and fractures, which, you know, in jockeys is something that uh, is a concern. And, of course, you've done some work in this area on whether, you know, reds or potentially other stimuli are potentially leading to this increased risk. Can you share a little bit of your work and and describe to the listeners some of the key findings? Uh, sure. So I guess it's been a vogue area of, of research over the last few years, really, since since REDS became a thing in, I think it was around like 2014, um, after like an upgraded it, if you like, form just the female athlete triad. Mm -hmm. uh, but over the last, I'd say, two or three years, um, the guys at, at John Moore's University, we've we've been questioning whether Reds exists within within jockeys. Um, so a piece of work that we did, we wanted to theoretically or if you could hypothesise, we think 
jockeys who have been in the game for 15, 20, 25 years should, in theory, um, have worse health than the guys that are just coming in. Take bone health, for example. Uh, we might have some 16 or 17-year-old um, rookie apprentice jockeys coming in. Theoretically, their bones should be um, should be healthy. And if these guys have been hammering themselves with no food and a lot of dehydration and low energy availability, um, we, we should, in theory, see a correlation and, and a decline in bone health as, as you get older and you stay in the game. Absolutely. Uh, but we found that there's absolutely no no difference, and we, and we were quite surprised uh, to find that the the bone health and the bone status of um, some of the teenagers um, was as bad, if not worse, as some of the jockeys that have been around in the game for like 15 or 20 years. Wow. So that it brings into the question: Does does reds exist um, in jockeys at least? And I mean that's just one piece of evidence, I guess. But one year. Uh, couple with that with with some of the other findings from from his other bits of research, um, you can perhaps build a case that they don't. I mean, working with jockeys um, in terms of body comp, even though these guys are light, I mean, some of them are like 110 pounds. If you get them to take the top off, they're not they're not ripped. You'd you'd expect them to be you know visible abs and and nothing on them, just skin and bone really. And that's not always the case. Um, they're carrying still quite a bit of of, of fat tissue um, and probably too much when you consider that these, some of these guys are sweating four or five pounds off every single day to make a weight but then you you stick them on the DEXA scanner and they've got like 15 pounds of of excess um, fat tissue so we're not just talking 15 pounds total we're talking like 15 pounds in excess um, wow so, yeah, that's interesting absolutely and that'll only happen through I guess there the can't be in chronic energy deficiency all the time and, and still have that much fat fat mass on them. Um, and when you look at bone, some of, sorry, um, some of the blood work we've looked at bone turnover, so like CTX and NTX, um, there and, and like PTH, mm-hmm. the, the scores are normal. They're within normative ranges. So again, if if the bones were were just wasting away through low energy availability, we're expecting would expect to see these markers of um, bone resorption sort of high or elevated at least, but they're not. They're within within, within normal ranges, um, and and I think the, the the kicker is I think the reason um, why we see poor bone health but not necessarily impaired um, turnover is it's just a lack of osteogenic stimulus, and a lot of these guys are plonked on a horse at a young age. It's like a family thing or it's something that they've always wanted to do. And that's their sport of choice from being maybe eight or nine years old. Um, then all of a sudden, your sports like hockey and soccer and rugby sort of go out the window. The, the sports where you're accelerating, decelerating, change of direction, you're in the gym. Um, they're not getting that load uh, through the skeleton. And instead, they're sat on a horse and the horse takes the, the impact through the floor. And as a result, um, yeah, you just, there's just a lack of development in, in, yeah, in skeletal tissue, we think. Yeah, it was really interesting to see, you know, the, the RMRs matching up from the predicted versus what you guys measured in the lab. And, of course, one of the individuals as well that you noted, a, a former amateur boxer who, who sort of stood out from the rest of the group because, just as you mentioned, they had obviously done a lot of training and a more load-bearing exercise. And so, that you know, that was one of the individuals that actually had decent bone density. So it, it is a pretty interesting aspect of this. And, of course, you know, if we talk... You know, here we're talking jockeys, but this could extend again to other weight-making sports. And of course, when we talk behaviors, it could extend to the whole whole population, really. And of course, behaviors are so fundamental to the decisions we make every day as humans. And of course, nutrition is a big one because most people are eating at least three times a day. You know, can you share with us a little bit of the you know your most recent work here around behavior change and and some of them? You know, Susan Mishi's work and the model that you use and adapting that to to professional jockeys. Uh, certainly, yeah. Um, the reason we sort of got into the behavior change uh, world and taking an interest in behavior change science was um, after those initial interviews with the uh, with the other stakeholders, it, it sort of became clear that there's a there's a huge disconnect or disparity between knowledge and behavior, and when you speak to jockeys and you ask them around the knowledge quite often they know they can recite pretty much the the guidelines that we're we're advocating and we're pushing um but they're just not doing them um so it's we think 
knowledge isn't necessarily the the problem it's it's behavior um and when i first looked into behavior change science um i was terrified by the amount well the number of theories and um, that you could sort of get involved in for sure uh, but yeah, the the work from like Susan Mishy and, and the guys at um, yeah, UCL, the University of College London, and the and the behaviour change uh, department there, they've developed a theory called the the COM-B model, which ultimately means if someone wants to engage, or if you want someone to engage in a behaviour, in, in our case, sort of eating well and and making weight safely, uh, there's three elements that you need to satisfy. The first is, are they capable? Um, of performing uh, that behavior and by capable we mean do they have the required knowledge of what to do and how to do it and then the skills element so can they actually go to the supermarket and and shop and then and then cook that properly um, and I think we do that quite well we educate jockeys really well from when they're licensing um, and there's a lot of supplementary materials sort of online and, and through through the support networks in the UK and that's, I think that's where it's always it's ended there. Uh, the combi model, the, the O stands for opportunity. So these guys need the opportunity to engage in that behavior. Um, and opportunity can be broken down into two bits. There's the physical environments that we're in. And if I were to ring a jockey up at any time of day, 24 hours, I can guarantee they'll either be in one or four places, they'll either be at home, They'll be on the yard where the horses are, like sort of exercising them. They'll be in the car. They usually spend about six or seven hours a day driving, or they'll be at the races. Um, so those four locations, if they're not geared up to facilitate and they're not conducive to the needs of a jockey nutritionally, and quite often they're not, um, then it's tough for them to engage in the behavior. And then it's the social environment. So who's in those environments? So if you've got old school jockeys or old school practitioners at the yard advocating or just jumping the bath, jumping the sauna, you know, forget the diet, um, that that's that's a barrier as well. It's tough to push back, right? Absolutely. Um, and it was really interesting. A couple, I think last week I was listening to uh, one of your previous episodes with uh, Krista Scott Dixon from Precision Nutrition, and she went on a lot about. Um, about behaviors and and the uh, yeah, environments and environment manipulation to to get guys to um, improve dietary behavior and I was nodding along the entire time um, and the final part of the combi model is is motivation so if, assuming they've got the knowledge and the skills and assuming the the environments that they're in are set up some people still don't do it and it comes down to to motive and they need um, yeah, they need to want to do it. And there's two types of, of motivation. There's um, reflective motivation, which is aligns them aligns with their beliefs. And so if we can get them young and educate them and convince them this is the way that you should do it and not the, not the old school way, um, and hopefully they've got a good professional attitude, they'll be more likely to want to do the right thing consistently. But then there's controlling the impulse. Um, so there's controlling the chimp. If you had a bad day and you've had a bad result, the easiest thing to do is on the drive home is to stop off you know pick up a few beers get a and you know, get some cake you know whatever it is that makes you makes you feel good um and it's about them having the self-control i guess to to not cave in and um and yeah i guess pass those those mental tests yeah it's incredible how you know people do need to be capable they need to have the opportunity and they need to have that motivation to be able to accomplish a task and you know as you guys implemented this um into your research in amongst the professional jockeys, can you describe to listeners how intakes, you know, changed or, or sometimes didn't change over the course of the uh, intervention? Yeah, I mean, we're really ambitious. We wanted to um, take on the take on the industry really, and so we needed to be mindful that one person or one small team couldn't do it alone. Um, so we actually recruited the the help of a lot of the stakeholders um, that I did the very initial interviews with, plus other people, and asked them really how how if we're going to do this and it's going to be a joined up approach across the industry, how do we do it? Um, uh, so we we tackled the the curriculum in the in the licensing school, so where jockeys go to get the license and 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 change some of the. Uh, the, the curriculum and then just the day-to-day -day being there so typically it was just three or four lessons and riding horses twice a day 
and where does it it's like we've got them right at the beginning of the career let's change their date or and let's let make them live 24 7 how ideally they should live as a perfect professional athlete with regards to exercise and nutrition um, and then once they've got licensed and within the early part of the career so the first two months of the careers um, they received um, like additional support through social media and they got to visit the labs at John Moore's University um, so yeah it was implementing um, so giving them the correct knowledge if you like so developing that capability from the very start I say giving them the opportunity but it was almost like forcing the opportunity upon them during that um, early period of the career um, to do the right things properly build those habits and if you can do them for a couple of weeks they're more likely to then run with them um, autonomously in their careers um, and then by bringing I guess motivating people in um, so role models senior role models ex, ex jockeys who've been there and done it and, and sort of killed it in a good way um, got them to deliver the messages that typically I'd deliver um, get them to deliver it instead. Um, yeah, we saw some good results. So over over like the twelve week intervention, um, knowledge went up. So the cool thing is that we did it with two groups. So we had one group of professional jockeys who were licensing. Um, we use as the intervention group uh, versus an, another group of licensing jockeys that we use as the control group. And the intervention group who received. Um, the new education, if you like, and the behavior change intervention, uh, their knowledge over the 12 weeks improved threefold, um, which is a good thing. Phenomenal, yeah. Yeah. But as I said earlier, well, like knowledge doesn't necessarily mean anything with, with in terms of behavior. Without application, yeah. But we but we did see uh, marked improvements in there, like carbohydrate and and protein um, habits that aligned. Um, directly with with what the research is saying so protein intakes around two to two and a half grams per kilo uh, carbohydrates pretty low around you know somewhere between two and four grams per kilo and, and fat was still slightly elevated but it had decreased um compared to that of the the control group um everything had improved as well there because they'd received obviously some education um but it wasn't really significant um so yeah so just from that um small um, scale pilot study, if you like, but in the real world setting, um, we saw some good success, and and thankfully the industry have taken a lot of those um, recommendations and and kept them going. That's fantastic, and it is really interesting, isn't it, when athletes get information from from one of their own, so to speak, right? An athlete, and a retired athlete, or you know, one of the elite athletes who's effectively saying all the same things you've been saying for the last how many years. Um, but there's that extra little bit of, of modeling and, and and just buy-in from the athletes, isn't it, to be able to then really take on board some of these things. And I'm I'm really curious about the use of social media, obviously, because, you know, for us at Canada Basketball, obviously our young athletes live on social media. I mean, even answering emails is, is tough. It's more like if you want to get a hold of somebody these days, it's, uh, you know, WhatsApp or, or DMs, right? So, you know, with respect to using some of these social media platforms for behavior change, for education, for interaction with athletes, can you talk a bit about um, you know, the interactions with the jockeys and, and what we're seeing maybe in the performance nutrition space as a whole? For sure, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just quickly pick up on the, on the touch about role models. Um, one thing that I, I did quite a bit of reading around um, around who are the best models to use um, ahead of getting the people in. And although you could go for the superstars, so if we were talking about soccer, you, it'd be amazing to get someone like Cristiano Ronaldo in or Messi. Mm-hmm. But what you find is that the distance between where these guys are at the very beginning of the career and where the superstars are, sometimes the... The gap's too big, right? The gap's too big. So quite often if you can get a role model who's maybe only three or four years into their career um but they've lit it lit it lit it up they can see the they can almost like see the journey um so sometimes you get more out of those uh, young role models than you do out of the, of the out of the superstars great insight but uh yeah with regards to the social media i mean because this was just a pilot study most of it was done um exactly like you mentioned there like via via whatsapp um so we targeted the the jockeys for 10 weeks post 
um, post-licensing, so in for the first 10 weeks of their careers, and just hit them with that push messages. Um, we wanted to see would this, you know, would, would this information work, and would, was there any any interaction um, back off it? So they weren't obliged to reply, but if they wanted to reply, they could. Um, and if they did, then I was basically a, a nutrition coach on the other end of that conversation. Um, and and it was surprising actually how many of them were interested if you push the message out. Um, so I think the key now is in something we're working towards in the industry um, is using like a centralized app um, where the yeah, general generic content will get pushed out and it doesn't have to be limited to nutrition. Now we know this works to an extent. You can push out some of the strength and conditioning stuff on there, um, yeah, exercise related to getting some osteogenic stimulus, thing, things like that. Um, but to be honest, um, we're probably behind in horse racing. We're probably behind the curve, and we've got a lot to learn probably from from the sports, you know, probably the team sports space. Uh, see how how they're doing it well, and and try and drag that across. Yeah, it was interesting to see. You know, ninety percent of people aged sixteen to thirty four are active on social media, obviously. So this this medium of being able to connect with people, and it's just as you mentioned, being able to drip feed some of this information in. And we don't even know if, if people are necessarily going to engage, but it kind of opens the door for them to engage. And oftentimes they do. And, and of course, someone like yourself is on the other end to provide the expert advice. And, you know, as you mentioned in your work, you know, I guess it's about 89% of practitioners now working in elite sport, Olympic sport, are using you know, social media as, as a big part of their practice and believe it's beneficial, which is tremendous. But I guess maybe if we flip to the other side of the coin here around the general population or maybe maybe just younger athletes in this context, a lot of them are getting their information off of social media as well. And this information is, is you know, they're trusting in what they're seeing on Instagram and influencers, et cetera. Can you speak to perhaps that other side of the coin and, and how things can potentially go down the wrong path for some individuals? Absolutely. Um, so historically, as we mentioned, jockeys, listen to jockeys, but jockeys of all didn't have social media to, to turn to. So the amount of times now I'm having to re-educate young jockeys from what they've seen on, on social media and with the scourge of, of influencers pushing like weight loss, weight loss products, things like, you know, weight loss coffee and, and, and things like this. Um, you've, yeah, you spend half your time convincing them that what they're seeing on the internet's not not true. And so in terms of the social media space, I think there's as not only is it effective in what we're trying to push, but I think there's a requirement for us to have it so we can see what these guys are also exposed to and to negate the effects of some of the I guess the negative push messages that you're getting from yeah, influencers on on Instagram and things like that. Um yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a tough it's a tough one because um the amount of times now um I go into the into the weighing room, into the dressing room, and I might get asked um about certain products and it, it, it's getting out of control where I haven't I haven't even heard of them. It's my job to have heard of them and I and I haven't heard of them. And so I'm thinking, all right, give give me five minutes and I'll jump online and and, and read Have it up. Look. And and yeah, ninety nine times out of a hundred it's um, yeah, it's nonsense. It's um, sort of like snake oil, and uh, if anything, um, just a massive anti-doping risk. Um, and sometimes that's the best way. I mean, when we're talking about behaviour change, sometimes yeah, education is a great thing. Sometimes plain coercion is a is a, is a tool that you can use. Um, and if you can scare some of the guys off and saying, look, you take that, you're at a huge risk of an anti-doping violation. And if you want to be sat on the on the sidelines, twiddling your thumbs for the next six months, you know, so like go ahead. Um, and some jockeys respond to that better than the actually listen to me. This is good for you, and I'd rather you do this instead. Some of them just respond to the to the negative advice, um, and so sometimes that's the right approach to take as well. Absolutely, yeah, I totally agree with that. And you know, on this topic, Dan, I mean, obviously, with this idea of people getting misinformation, maybe you're just starting to work with a certain athlete, client, individual. And obviously, let's say the information they've gotten from Instagram or wherever is, is, again, bad information, but you've just started working with them. How do you kind of bridge that gap when they start asking these questions? Is this good? Is this good? And of course, the answer, as you mentioned, 99% of the time is no. Um, but from just a connectivity standpoint and trust and all these types of things and building that with, with a new client, it's, it's such a 
fine line to tread, isn't it, to be able to try to the responses that we give and the way that we answer those questions. So I was curious of any strategies that you have or how you sort of handle those situations. Yeah, no, good question. I think it depends on what the product is. Um, when you were saying that, something that popped into my head um, was when, obviously when Game Changers came out um, late last year, mm -hmm. I, this is away from racing as well, but it's even within the racing community. I was getting asked questions all the time about, you know, should we go vegan? Should we be eating meat? And the approach I tend to took was, well, what do you think about the, what did you think about it? You know, you've watched it. What did you think? Um, and, and I'd sort of agree with them to an extent saying, you know what? I'm, I watched it. I thought it was a great, I thought it was a great documentary. Really, really interesting. Um, what did you take away from it? And try to pick, um, I guess, try to pick out like what were their key take home messages that they got and then go from there. Um, never, to go with the approach of that saying, ignore that, that's wrong, you're wrong for thinking that. Mm -hmm. um, so to engage them in a meaningful conversation, figure out what they're thinking, what their thoughts are on it, um, agree with them to some extent, um, but then bring the conversation around to, well, we thought about this and thought about that, and actually did you know that you know the the, um, the director is a movie director, so it's gonna be, it was fantastically made, you know, the guys made Hollywood movies, and oh, by the way, he, you know, he owns, uh, oh, he's got massive shares in a you know, plant-based company and, and then and bring the conversation around and try to get a bit of a discussion going. Um, and I mean, hopefully, like I say, I'm lucky within horse racing anyway, because I'm reasonably well trusted now, um, but maybe that's not always the case in, in new ventures. Um, but that's the approach I've, I've tended to take is not just shut the door on something, try to engage conversation. Um, and I think if go with a, the humanistic approach, the person first approach. And I think if you can build a good relationship, um, then the, the, the trust will come naturally um, off the back of that. That's a yeah, great suggestion. I mean, it's just always tremendous to be sort of turning it back on them to really try to understand what it is that they took out of this piece of information. Um, rather than unfortunately, we still see this a lot in, you know, whether it's medical practice or dietetics or training or whatever else that people you know, practitioners might just immediately give the no answer. And then, you know, that, that relationship is obviously compromised right from the outset. And Dan, if we, if we shift gears a little bit, I mean, your work here in weight making jockeys, obviously tremendous. You talked about some of the work you're doing in, in formula one. Can you share some of the things that are crossing over or some of the problems, you know, similarities or differences that you're seeing in professional uh, formula one racing? Yeah, I guess it's really surprising how many parallels there are between horse racing and and, and Formula One. Um, the the fact that the the horse is the car, if you like, and the jockey is the driver. <laughs> and so true. Um, yeah, and then and then the workforce behind it. So within horse racing, you've got dozens and dozens of people caring for the horses, looking after them, riding of the morning. Um, and then each race team within Formula One's got a team of, I mean, I remember like around fifty or sixty. Um, mechanics and engineers looking after the car every day, um, you know, tweaking it, looking after it, making adjustments and changes. Um, so from a team dynamic point of view, there's a heck of a lot of, of, um, of, of similarities. Um, the difference is, I guess, um, F1 is um, a lot more um, further on in terms of the mindset around them being athletes. Um, there's no question about that. If you were to ask any driver, you're an athlete. That's absolutely. Um, but then the people underneath that, in terms of the mechanics and the and the race team, um, if you were to ask them, are they athletes? Which I guess they're not. Um, they'd say no. We're me you know we're mechanics, and some of them look after themselves, and some of them really really don't. Um, and you get a you get a lot of that with the workforce in in horse racing as well. They'll say, well, no, we're not the jockeys. We're the race force. Uh, so we're we're the workforce. Um, and as such, their lifestyle behaviors and attitudes aren't, aren't always great, even though they've got incredibly manual jobs and they need to be on it every day of the year. Um, yeah, they're, they're not. So there's actually quite a lot of a lot of similarities. And in terms of differences, I'm, I'm still learning that. So I've only been with, with the F1 team since um, since January. So I'm only like 10 weeks into the role. So I'm still learning it very much myself. Um, but without question, the um, experiences uh, I've had for the last seven years in racing uh, standing me in good stead um, for working with the F1 team. 100%. And, you know, maybe if we round things off here by talking a bit of specifics around hydration and more specifically dehydration, mm -hmm. when we look at 
professional jockeys and horse racing, whether we look at Formula One drivers, obviously dehydration has big impacts on the on the cognitive side. Could you speak to some of the potential risks there for for one or both individuals and, and some of the ways to, to mitigate those risks? Certainly, yeah. I mean, within within racing, we did a, a cool study. In fact, I say we. I can't take credit for it. It was, it was prior to my time at John Moore's, but um, they got a group of, of 12 jockeys to come along and do a battery of fitness tests and then come back a week later. Um, and prior to doing, well, repeating the tests, they got them to stick a sweatsuit on and, and run for 45 minutes um, to sweat a couple of pounds out. And uh, even just two pounds, which jockeys are really accustomed to doing, um, they witnessed there like a 14% decrease in upper body strength, um, 5% decrease in, in leg strength, um, and then like a decrease in the a horse race, almost like a Wingate test in the last 30 seconds, you really, really hammer it and decrease sort of like pushing frequency and, and output in, in that last 30 seconds there. Um, and reaction times um, were down by around 7 or 8%. Wow. Um, and that's just on a horse. So, I mean, as far as I'm aware, there's no research done in Formula One, or there's, there's like internal research, but nothing that I've seen. Um, but, I mean, those guys' reaction times have got to be insane. They're going at, you know, 160 to 200 miles per hour. Um, you know, other cars around them, you know, anything could happen. So dehydration, again, as I said earlier, I think the biggest concern quite often is, is the safety element of it. Um, but in terms of mitigating it, um, the cool thing that we can do, and you certainly, certainly do it in, in Formula One, in boxing, in MMA, but we tend not to do it in horse racing. Um, again, we're just not there professionally yet, is getting sweat, profile, uh, sweat profiling done. So at mm -hmm. least if the guys are going to sweat, if we can see what, the, what what is the composition of sweat and what is the rate of sweat, we can make up some... Um, uh, yeah, some bespoke uh, rehydration solutions for them. Um, so we know what's going out, we're, we're putting straight back in. Um, and I guess just following the, the, the standard guidelines is if you're going to, if you get, you know, if you're going to uh, lose a, a liter of or kilo of, of weight, so I'd at least put 150 to 200% back in. And, and that's very easy for like an F1 driver to do, but jockeys are super reluctant to do that because they know that the weight's then going to be a kilo heavier than what it was um, before they took the, took the water weight off. Um, so you're fighting an uphill battle there, and that's ultimately where it comes back down, with jockeys at least, to getting the, the education and the behavior right. Because um, if they're educated and they know, well, it's just temporary weight, it's not permanent weight. And if we get them to eat properly anyway longitudinally over a long period of time um that chubbiness i was talking about earlier that won't be there and they should be leaner and then the need to even sweat and make weight won't be there um so yeah we're in a bit of a cycle at the minute but we're in a we're in a much better place than we were seven years ago when i first started and there's a lot more jockeys now that identify as athletes and and behave like athletes than than there ever has been phenomenal dan well listen that leads into my last question which is and you've touched on it a little bit, but you know, what's the evolution of you know, weight making and performance in professional jockeys? And if we maybe extend this even out, if you want to comment on, on weight making sports in general. Yeah, I mean, one cool study that we've, we've literally just got ethics for is, and, and we hope it'll then put the, 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 bone, the, the bone health question to bed with the jockeys is through bone biopsies. Um, so after, obviously we're seeing jockeys, the DEXA scan saying they've got osteopenia or osteoporosis but then you take the blood and the the resorption markers and turnover markers are, are sort of normal um so the, the coolest way to do it would be let's just have a look at the actual bone so we've 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 had it pass so in the future so when jockeys get injured and they have to have if they have to have surgery and the surgeon if there's any bone fragments that need to be sort of extracted and, and usually just discarded um, the surgeon will, will sort of pass them over and we can have a look at them through the microscope and Incredible. compare it to the, to the DEXA scan score. So if it says they've got a score of, you know, Z score of minus 2 or 2.5, sort of osteoporotic, but then you look at the bone and it's and it's really quite dense, then um, we know we can start to start questioning what the DEXA scans are saying. And these guys are, are small people, so... Um, Bit of an outlier, maybe. Absolutely. Um, so that's So that's one area. Uh, the longitudinal profiling and tracking of jockeys is something that we're hoping to, to get going, um, starting with jockeys who are literally coming in um, into the industry as 16-year-olds. And if we can track them right the way through to 
to the well, hopefully till they retire we can we can see what's going on uh, longitudinally um and then yeah i guess um, in terms of nutrition generally in, in weight making sports i think we're onto something with the behavior change stuff there's uh, there's you know there's been 20 20 years with plus of of sports science research around hydration and in you know the carbohydrate and protein mm-hmm. and base research and that's all that'll always exist and there's always a place for it but in terms of the the sharp end where we're dealing with athletes face to face and it's about the application of the science um quite often we know what what we need to be doing it's it's getting it done which is the hard part and i think we want something and we've got a, a good paper um in preparation coming out um with a bit yeah but their behavior change study with the jockeys and i think it could be easy, quite easily transferred a across other sports weight making and team sports but b across disciplines i mean we'd be, this is in the context of nutrition in jockeys but there's no reason it couldn't be done within sports psychology or strength conditioning phenomenal listen dan i appreciate you carving out some time today looking forward to keeping up to all your tremendous research where can everyone else keep in touch with you and and on social media or, or stay connected with your research uh, yeah, I'm, I stay reasonably uh, active on on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at nutrition Dan, um, and then yeah, if you want to email me, um, I guess you can get me at DM. So my initials DM at nutritiondan.com. Phenomenal. Thanks again, Dan. Really appreciate the time tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. If you enjoyed the content. Please subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform to show your support. Also, a special note, this summer, we'll be launching an online course centered around the work from my new book, Peak. So if you enjoyed the book and looking for a deeper dive into continuing education and performance nutrition, as well as continuing education units for strength coaches, dietitians, practitioners, then head over to athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And sign up to our pre-sale list. And you'll be the first to hear about when we launch this exciting course. Lastly, if you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode, be sure to reach out on social media at Dr. Bubs and fire away with those questions and comments. Thanks for listening, folks, and see you next time. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.